You know, when we think about Easter, I suppose that uh, we could talk about any number of things and there's any, any number of passages we could actually go to because really the scripture is all about Easter. It's what it points to if you think about it. I mean, we could have maybe looked at prophecy and seen all the prophecies that were fulfilled because the Bible is one book with a unified purpose made up of individual books, 66 of those with over 30 authors who, who wrote this unified purpose to show that Jesus was the Messiah, that Christ is King. We could have certainly talked about what Kirk already said, that he is risen, risen indeed, and that that would make a massive difference in our lives, that Christ had died for us and had conquered sin and death. And I often think that Christ was wounded for us at Calvary, but he gave the mortal wound to our great enemy, which is death and Satan. And we're just waiting for him to come back and finish the job, so to speak, if we think of it that way, when Satan, who we know has already been mortally wounded, will be shattered for good. If we went a little bit deeper, we could talk about how it means new life for us. And if we were to talk about that, we might talk about how we were under the wrath of God and children of wrath, lost in our sin and our transgressions and how Christ died for us. John three sixteen makes so much sense this time of year as we think about it. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And if you've never experienced the freedom of knowing Christ, our prayer is that you would today, that you would receive him as Lord and Savior. But I think the question that I want us to focus on this morning would be what difference does the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ make in your life? How does knowing a resurrected Savior make any difference in your life today? When I have the opportunity to talk to our interns about preaching, one of the things that we often talk about with them is that uh, it's really easy to get the explanation of a text down and get it right. If you think about it, that shouldn't be the hardest thing that we do because we've had so many folks through the centuries write about the Bible. Bible scholarship is at an all-time high. You can grab all kinds of resources and, and be able to explain the scripture but often we fail to apply the scripture. We might explain the resurrection of Christ this morning, but what difference does it make? It to me is a little bit like sitting in a geometry class, learning about Pythagorean theorem, but never being told how it might affect my life when I get outside of it. The best teachers always show you examples of how it's going to make a difference. And Jesus gives us that example. And I want you to see it today. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to the gospel of John. The last chapter is the 21st chapter. That will be our text this morning. And I want us to think about what the resurrection means and what it means to our lives and the life that you're going to live tomorrow on Monday, when you go to work, when you go to school, when you're raising your children, when you're interacting with people, what will the resurrection mean for you? In John 21, we read in verse 15 these words. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to them, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told them. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved 
that he had asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. And he said this to indicate the kind of death Peter would glorify God with. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. It'd been a pretty rough week for Peter, if you think about it. Peter had been with Jesus at the the Lord's Supper, that first Lord's Supper. They'd been celebrating the Passover together when Jesus took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. He took the cup and he passed it and said, this is my blood shed for you. And then he began to say, you guys are about to be scattered. You're gonna run away, you're going to hide. And Peter had said, if everybody else does that, I'm gonna stick right by you. I'll, I'll walk with you in life. I'll walk with you in death. You don't have to worry about me. I'm going to be faithful to the end. A bold proclamation of his love for Jesus. Jesus had told him to be careful because Peter, in fact, was going to deny the Lord three times. Peter did deny the Lord three times. And then he went into hiding, scattered, just like Jesus had said. But in this passage that we find Jesus talking to Peter, it's the third time since the morning of the resurrection that Peter and Jesus have been in close proximity to one another. Although this is the first time that the scripture records that they actually had an interaction like this. The first time that they had been together, the disciples were in a locked room scared. Mary Magdalene had come and said, guess what guys, what Jesus had said is true. The stone is rolled away, he's alive. And Peter and John had run to the tomb and looked for Jesus and he wasn't there. And they went right back to the room where they were hiding, shut the door and locked it. They were afraid. And Jesus came in and said, peace, I give you. He came a second time. And that's that, that time when doubting Thomas, Thomas, that one who was always so faithful to say exactly what he was feeling, exactly what he was thinking. We get some of our greatest scriptures from Thomas in John 14, when Thomas says, Lord, we have no idea where you're going. What do you mean we know where you're going? And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He'd come to Thomas and said, Thomas, do you still need to put your hands in my my hands and in my feet and in my side where I was pierced? And now this third time, they'd been waiting again. And the scripture records in John 21 that Peter basically said, I'm going fishing. I don't know what else to do. I'm going fishing. He'd been a fisherman And so you can imagine, this has been a tough week for him. I wonder if in those moments when Jesus had come in the room, if if Peter was kind of standing in the back of the crowd, you know, kind of, oh, I hope he doesn't remember that I denied him. I hope the guys don't look at me one day and say, hey, big mouth, remember when you said you weren't gonna deny Jesus? Look what you did. He's hiding. I, I know he must have felt maybe perhaps defeated, But Jesus invites these guys to a breakfast, a couple of the disciples and Peter. And Jesus asked Peter three questions. Notice, if you would, with me again, as they're eating breakfast, he looks at them and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What a tough question to be asked. You know, it must have stung for Jesus to look at you and say, now you told me you were staying with me faithfully, but do you love me more than these? 
it's really this kind of thing that we may not see exactly from our scripture if we don't understand the wordplay that's going on. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago I told you as we were talking about marriage that there are three words in the Greek language used for love. We use one word for love and kind of encompass all three with explanations. There's agape love, the, the highest form of love. It's unconditional, it's pure. It's the love that God has for us. There's phileo love, which is where we get the term Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's a fond of affection that we have for one another. There's eros, which is where we get our word erotic from, not found in the Bible, in the New Testament. We don't see it there. And Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? Agape, the highest love. Is that how you love me? Do you love me like that? And Peter says, I'm fond of you. I love you like with brotherly affection, phileo. I, I love you like that. And when he said that, you, you know, as he says this thing of comparison, if I could read it for you, do you remember this from, from Matthew chapter 26 and verse 31? Jesus said, tonight all of you will fall away because of me. It said, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep of the flock will be scattered, but after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter said, even if everyone else falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, tonight before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I'll never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Peter had this declared faithful love to the Lord, a love that was going to be to the end. But now as Peter answers and says, I mean, I'm fond of you. Do you love me more than these? I'm fond of you. I love you like I can. Jesus tells Peter, okay then, feed the little lambs. Feed the little lambs, the smallest in the kingdom. Take that on and make it yours. Then Jesus asked him a second question. But it's one and the same, but there's a subtle difference. Do you notice it? He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The first was one of comparison. Do you love me more than everybody else that's gathered here? And Peter may have said in the past, well, well, you know I do. I'm never gonna leave you. But he'd already answered, you know I love you. He doesn't say I love you more than anyone else. And now he says, okay, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me with this highest form of love? The one that is, is pure from above. And Peter again answers as only he can. I phileo you. I, I love you fondly, like a brother. He responds truthfully. Now Jesus isn't asking him a question of comparison. He's asking him a personal question. Peter, when you break it all down, forget about everyone else. Do you love me the best that I can? And Jesus says, shepherd the flock. Take care of them, tend to them. Go and do this. This is the calling that I've given you. It's the original ministry that you've seen, Peter. You've walked with me, I'm the good shepherd. You've followed me, you've seen it, and now I want you to do that. Shepherd this flock. And then Jesus asked him another question. Simon, for the third time, do you love me? But this time Jesus changes it. The first two times he said, do you love me like I love you? 
Do you love me with the highest form of love? This unrelenting love that pursues you to the ends of the earth. Do you you love me unconditionally as I have loved you? This time he changes it and just says, okay, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you have fond affection for me? Three denials of Peter you notice the symmetry, three questions from Jesus. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And I want you to see Peter's response. It, it's painful even to read, isn't it? Do you love me, Jesus says, and Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. It's different than what we read in Matthew 26, isn't it? Where Peter's boasting and talking about all, all the great things he's going to do. Now he just looks at Jesus and says, you know everything. Before he said, you don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. I'll never deny you. Now he just says, I I give up. I don't know what to tell you any more than this. You know everything. But then he follows it up by saying, I love you. Not with agape love, but I love you like I've been telling you, Jesus, with phileo. The brotherly love, I'm fondly affection of you. He's basically saying, I know now I can't perfectly love you like you perfectly love me. It doesn't work. I tried. I tried it in myself and I failed because I'm not you. Only the love of the Father could be unconditional towards us. The love of the Son, the love of the Holy Spirit towards us. And Jesus, recognizing that he finally has Peter's attention, it's there, says, feed the sheep. Feed the lambs, shepherd the sheep, feed the sheep. As he says this, feed the lambs means cultivate and nourish them. Those those littlest ones in the kingdom, cultivate and nourish them so that they're drawn towards me. Get them ready to receive me. Shepherd the sheep means tend to them, protect them, provide for them, lead them into pasture. As he says, feed the sheep, he says, give them what they're going to need to grow so that they stay in the nourishment of the word. If you think about this, Peter had been chosen by Jesus to be part of an intimate group of 12. 12 disciples that followed Jesus for three and a half years, everywhere he went. They saw Jesus do amazing things. They sat at his feet. They had a a, a tutor in Jesus to teach them all things, not only with words from his mouth, but by the way that he lived. They had seen it up close and personal. But Peter had been part of a select group out of the 12 of the three. If you read in the New Testament, it's always who? Peter, James, and John. James and John, the two brothers. John, the, the disciple who's writing this gospel, who's always with Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved. But Peter has been a leader with these three. And afterwards, he's afraid. He'd been this leader who was gonna be faithful to the end, but he'd run away. Denying Jesus three times. And this intimate group of three had been changed at the cross. Only John was there. So there was some restoration work that had to be done. This was Peter, not just Simon. That was his name before he met Jesus. It was Simon. But do you remember that when he met Jesus, Jesus says, I'm gonna change your name to Cephas, Peter, the little stone. It had been Peter, if you remember, when Jesus was asking everyone, hey, what does everybody say that I am? Who do they say that I am? And the disciples said, well, 
Some people say that you're a prophet. Some say that you're a teacher. Some say that you're Elijah, come back. And Peter had stepped right to the front, right when they were at the very place called hell. It was the literal gates of hell. This place, if you go with us to Israel, you'll be able to see it. It's a place carved in the side of a mountain where they sacrificed to foreign gods, false gods. It's where they would take babies and sacrifice them, throw them there. It was called the gates of hell, literally. And at that place, Peter stepped forward and said, it doesn't matter what everybody else says you are. I'm gonna tell you who you are. I believe you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, you are the little rock, but based on the big rock, this big confession that you've made, I'm gonna build the kingdom on that and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. This stuff that you see, it will never be able to overcome you. It must have felt like that was a thousand lifetimes away in this moment when Jesus is telling him, I want you to do something. I want you to be on mission. I want you to see that my resurrected life has changed yours. And as Jesus brings him back, he restored him. It wasn't long after this restoration that Peter preached in Acts chapter two what may be the most powerful sermon the church has ever seen. And when I say the church, I mean any church. Pick a church, the universal church. In that day, 3,000 people received the word of God, confessed their sin, and were baptized as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's not hiding anymore. He's not run away. And I want you to see this. When when Jesus restored Peter, there were four things that changed because of the power of the resurrection that had happened in Peter's life. As Peter's restored and he begins to walk in new life and resurrection, he began to live out four things. Here's the first. The resurrection gave Peter victory over his failures. We all have them. Peter had them. You have them. I have them. Many times, I think what's wrong about those failures is not that we fail, it's that we're content to just live with them and sit in them. This is just who I am. It's the way that I am. I can't change. I I don't know what to do. Peter could have said that. He could have said, I I thought I was somebody and now I realize I'm nobody. There's nothing to me. I couldn't even stay with Jesus in his darkest hour. I ran away, I hid. Jesus didn't let Peter stay hidden. He called him back. And the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ in our lives gives us victory over our failures. It gives us the ability to put to death the failures of sin in our lives so that we don't live by the flesh, but we live by the spirit. That's what the resurrection power of Jesus Christ brings to us. Secondly, it gave Peter a supernatural boldness and courage. Peter faced a hostile culture. Everywhere he went, he was being persecuted. As we read the book of Acts, we find that, that he and John are arrested, they're beaten, they're persecuted because they're just speaking the truth, they're speaking the faith, trying to get people to see who Jesus is. And yet we don't find Peter running away anymore. When Jesus was being tried, Peter was there, and there was a little servant girl. She said, aren't you one of his? The scripture said he swore bitterly at that. I'm not one of them at all, no. He was afraid, now he's not afraid. 
He has supernatural courage and boldness to face the culture of his day and proclaim something that will change people's lives forever. The resurrection lets us stare at adversity and declare with boldness that if God is with us, who can be against us? Who can overcome us? It lets us look at things that are uncomfortable in our lives and say, I will not be afraid. I'm going to trust the Lord today. I can stare down death. I can stare down uncertainty of next year. I can stare down this hardship that I'm in and I can face it with boldness because Jesus is alive. Third, the resurrection gave Peter a message to tell the world. Peter had no message. He was ready to go back fishing. I often think about the way Peter says that. It's hilarious. In chapter 21 and verse one and two, it says, you know, after Jesus was revealed to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, the two other disciples uh, and two other of his disciples were there. And Peter just declares, I'm going fishing. I'm done. I'm going back to what I know. But with this encounter with Jesus, Jesus said, you need to be feeding the lambs, shepherding the sheep, feeding the sheep. You have a message. The message is good news for the world. It's our message as well. It's ours to tell. Living in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ makes gospel engagements take on a new focus for us because we realize that what the world needs is not another tax break, even though you're filling your taxes out this weekend. Some of you are already thinking about that extension you gotta file. You don't need a tax break. The world doesn't need another economic plan. The world doesn't need another degree that they can go get. We don't need more education. We need Jesus. We need the transforming power of Jesus Christ in this world. That's the message of the church, and it's ours to tell, ours to go and live in victory over our failures, to live with boldness and courage and proclaim that Jesus is alive. And finally, I think the most lasting thing the resurrection brought to Peter's life is the same thing that it brings to ours, hope, hope. Our yesterdays are not our tomorrows. You're going to mess up this week. I will too. You'll mess up next month and the year after that. But what Jesus shows us here is that oftentimes we just feel like God must be done with us. God must be through with us. He, he must not have anything for us to do and we think I'm too old, I'm too young, I, I'm too flawed, I'm too broken. There's no way that God could use me and yet God brings hope to us. I was recently reading a book study of the prophet Jeremiah when I encountered this passage of scripture. I, I'd like to read it for us from, from Jeremiah chapter 18. This is the word that came from Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down at once to the potter's house and there I will reveal my words to you. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working away at the wheel. 
But, at the jar, as, at, but the jar that he was making from the clay became flawed in the potter's hand. So he made it into another jar because it seemed right for him to do. A couple of years ago, there were some folks that lived here in Nashville, part of our church. They've since moved away. And they invited uh, Kathy and I and our children and said, oh, would you guys like to come over to our house on a Saturday because we love to do pottery. It's something that we love to share with people and we would love for you guys to come over and, and make something and, and just enjoy that and see what we do. We teach these classes. I'd never done any pottery, so I was all game. Let's go. Let's go find out what this is like. I discovered a couple of things that day. One, I'm no good at pottery. It's just bad. Two, I am better than Greg Fuson at pottery because he took the class later than I did and my cup was much better than his. I did say that. If you see Greg today, you remind him of that. But I learned a third thing that was really important. One of the things that happens when you're working with clay, right, is that if it gets an imperfection or it kind of messes up, you get a chance. It's not just spoiled. It's not just ruined. You get a chance. You throw it down and make it all new again. You, you can start with it again. And you can turn it into something beautiful right up until the point you throw it in the oven and you let it all dry out and it just kind of takes its final shape. You have the ability to do something incredible with it. You know, Jeremiah was facing a, a tough situation. He was watching his nation crumble around him. He felt like they were off the rails. And the reason he felt that way is because they were. They turned their back on God. And God gave Jeremiah a couple of pictures for him to go and observe that we're going to inform his preaching. And this one in particular informed what God was about to do. That God was in the business of shaping people, shaping nations, shaping things to be something greater than they could ever imagine. The author that I was reading about this passage of scripture said this and I quote, and what would the potter do now? Talking about when the, 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 the jar was misshapen. He reworked it, the clay, into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do because God needs and presses and pushes and pulls. The creative work starts over patiently and skillfully because God doesn't give up. God doesn't throw away what is spoiled. I was talking with Jimmy Hagerman about that this week. Jimmy Pastors Recovery Church here on our campus. Aren't you grateful that God never throws away things that are spoiled? Aren't you grateful that your yesterdays, and, and let's be honest, some of our yesterdays were awful. Maybe yesterday for you was awful. You know it, you sense it, you feel it, and you're here this morning because somebody dragged you here maybe with the promise of lunch afterwards. And we're grateful that you're here. But there's a message for you to hear, and it's a message of hope that Jesus came to the world to save sinners, not perfect people. He wasn't looking for clay that had already been made into the perfect jar. We are the clay in the master's hands, and he throws us on the wheel, and he shapes us into something that is beautiful, and he presses us, he needs us, and pulls us apart and shapes us into something that is useful and never throws away anything that we would deem spoiled. That's why we don't give up on people. That's why we don't stop praying for people to be saved because hope exists in the resurrection. So for you this morning, for me, what difference will the resurrection make? 
maybe it's for us to ask for the resurrection to give us victory over failure today. That we could look at our sins, our shame, and just say, Lord, I've been battling this. It's a besetting sin. It seems to just sit with me all the time. And I know that you died to give me victory over it. I claim the victory that is mine today. Help me crucify the flesh. Maybe for us, it's to just ask the Lord for the boldness that is ours in, and to have courage as we face this world, as we need courage to face the circumstances that are coming to our lives, that we would look at those and not shrink away from them, but walk to them, not sure of our own selves, but sure of Christ. Maybe for us today, it would be that we would understand that we have a message for the world and that we would be faithful to that message. If the resurrection has done anything for us, how can we be silent? The resurrection changed Peter and 3,000 people were changed in a day. And maybe today it's that we need a reminder of, of hope that God doesn't throw out what is spoiled. He didn't say, Peter, man, I had high hopes for you. You were one of the 12. I picked you to be one of the three. You're a loser. You're awful. You're of no value to the kingdom. He restored him and said, go and do the work. But this time, go with the hope of the resurrection and do it in my power, not yours. You know, God knows all things about you today. As Peter declared, Lord, you know all things. God knows all things about you. He knows exactly where you are. He knows if you're running. He knows if you're pretending this morning. He knows if you're weak. He knows if you're frail. He knows if you're in failure right now. He knows if you're living in sin right now. He knows if you've never declared him to be the Lord of the world, Savior of the world. And the good thing about it is that he offers us hope. Takes beauty from ashes, makes alive what was dead, and he does it through Christ. God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly and the whole church said, amen. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? We're gonna to come to a time of invitation now. An invitation really is a chance for us to respond. It's a chance for us to go before the Lord and, and ask him to search our hearts. It's a chance for us to go before the Lord and see if there's anything in our lives that's outside of what God would have for us. And so I'm asking you this morning, can I ask you a few questions? One, are you saved? And here's what I mean. I've talked a lot about restoration. I've talked a lot about the love of God this morning. But don't mistake this. The wrath of God will be poured out on all unrighteousness. If you're not saved this morning, why not? Maybe you've been putting it off for a long time. Be saved today. In a moment, we'll stand and sing and I'm gonna invite you to do something that may sound utterly scary to you. 
I'm gonna ask you to step out from where you're seated and come and take me by the hand as we start singing and just say this, I need to be saved today. We'll take care of the rest and show you from the scripture how you can know the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of your sins and be right with God the Father. But church, are you living in the hope of the resurrection? Maybe it's that there's that sin that needs to be crucified in your flesh today. Maybe it's time to rededicate your life to the Lord today. Our altars are going to be open. Church, I'm praying that you will respond today in faith with hope that God is still in the business of making all things new. Father, it's our prayer this morning that as we enter this time of response and invitation, that you would do the work in each man, each woman, each boy, each girl's heart. Father, for the one who doesn't know you today, may today be the day of salvation where they look to their past and say, I'm walking away from that and I'm running to Jesus. And for us as a church, may we live in the power of the resurrection today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.